Welcome to Toward Wellbeing, a podcast that seeks to offer wellness information and explore solutions to well-being challenges faced by the legal community. I am Denise Permay, the Associate Director for the DC Bar Lawyer Assistance Program. We are really happy you're joining us today. As a reminder, we coordinate each podcast with the Washington Lawyer Magazine issue using the LAP column Toward Wellbeing as a jumping off point for a more in-depth conversation. The January-February issues column is called Grieve and Heal at Your Own Pace, written by Heather Horton, a local lawyer who has a grief coaching practice. The column covers what grief is and that it's a normal and natural process following loss. The column also touches on how our employers can provide support for the grieving processes that employees go through. Our guest today is Kathleen Seebeck, Associate Director of Client Services with Haven of Northern Virginia, a volunteer grief support service. Thanks for being our guest today, Kathleen. Thank you, Denise. Thank you for having me. Yes, as you said, I'm with Haven of Northern Virginia. Haven is a unique organization. It's primarily grief support. We've been around since 1976. We offer individual support workshops and groups. We are staffed by all trained volunteers, and we're not clinicians. So, so thank you for having us. Kathleen, can you describe a bit about Haven and the workshops and support groups that Haven offers? Sure. Along with individual support, our primary focus lately since COVID has been on workshops and support groups. And so we have developed a curriculum based primarily on the works of William Warden and Alan Wolfelt around the task of mourning. And so our curriculum and what we offer to our clients is a grief process around the, what we have determined as five tasks of mourning. Mm. So, you know, again, Denise, I'm glad that your association is addressing grief. It's very important, particularly in today's fast-paced culture, and probably particularly for your lawyers. I think I understood you to say that they are trained not to become emotionally involved with their clients. And I'm sure that many of them experience either vicariously or even have secondary loss issues when they hear the many stories of their clients. So the question is, what do you do with this? And anyone who does grief work will tell you that the grief and trauma you experience just waits for you and you need to address it. It's also important to recognize that we don't live in a culture that does suffering well. We just want to move on and that's not helpful. Right. Also, loss and grief are a fabric of our lives, and we think that it's just about death, but it isn't. It's just really a part of what we do, and we don't recognize it. Mm -hmm. And it's important to know that grief's not a problem to be solved. It's just a process. Yeah, I love that. That's great. So that's, that's really so many important points, Kathleen. How do you and the other Haven volunteers work with clients who are experiencing trauma due to grief? Well, we like to work within the framework of what we call the five tasks of mourning. Mm. And those are addressed more formally in our workshops and our support groups, but we also can do it on an individual basis. And so basically the overview of the tasks that we address, there's five of them. The first one is accepting the reality of the loss, experiencing the pain of the loss, visualizing the future, deciding on the meaning of your loved one's life and death, and achieving a mix of the old and the new, or moving forward. 
those are really different than the traditional stages of grief that people are familiar with. Can you say a little bit about those differences? Yes, yes, yes. The stages of grief as developed by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross are very applicable to the dying process. But we found when working with grief, people think that each stage is a stage. It's actually an emotion. And so, you know, they overlap and they come and go. And people think, well, I've already been depressed. I've already been this, that, and the other. Why am I doing this again? And I'm not doing it right. It just seemed confusing. And this seems to fit into a more workable journey or grief process, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I mean, because there's a big difference between if we ourselves are given, for instance, a terminal diagnosis and we know we're going to pass away at some point in the near future, that's different than we suddenly lose someone we love, for instance, or, you know, our child goes to college and we find ourselves struggling with those feelings. The column that Heather wrote talks a little bit about employers and the struggle that many lawyers have in working for large legal organizations because many employers they might have a short bereavement leave for someone, for instance, but that just frequently doesn't cut it for someone. And she talks about how many people need more than that. So from your angle, how might coworkers be sensitive to those experiencing a loss while at the same time respecting that person's boundaries? Mm. That is a great question because dealing with loss in the workplace is just fraught with landmines, <laughs> you know. The griever doesn't know how they want to present themselves, and your coworkers want, generally want to help you, but they don't know how. And so it's very awkward at the least. So I think probably people who are uh, working within institutions or organizations have HR rules and this, that, and the other that help them to provide a safe place for the working environment. But loss and grief just aren't a part of that. So you know, for example, most of us are afraid to address the griever, I'll call them. And we somehow expect that there's this perfect thing we can say to them. There isn't. Often we avoid them and they feel that avoidance or they avoid us because they just don't know where they stand. And avoidance often makes the griever feel more isolated and more unwelcome. Some grievers just don't want to discuss their loss. So you don't know what to do. So I have a few suggestions if you want me to continue. Yes, I think that would be very helpful for our listeners. I've gotten this from our clients. This is what people have told us. Greet your coworker, acknowledge their loss. I'm sorry is often enough. If you are comfortable discussing the loss, let them know you're available to talk. Talking about our losses is basic and necessary, but be prepared for rejection. Try not to take it seriously. I'll say this many times, probably. It's so important to know your audience, and often we just don't. Think about what you are safely able to hear for your own self-interest, because frankly, we sometimes can't hear all of the details. It's, it's just a lot. Don't talk about your individual losses unless they ask you. Conversation's not about us. Be reflective and compassionate, of course. Many loss stories are illogical. Don't question that. Do not offer advice. Be gentle in your approach and be gentle to you too. Now, this is a potential landmine. You might have serious concerns about what your coworker is telling you, and they might look like significant mental health issues. So what do you do with that? Do you go to HR? You have to think about confidentiality, but you also have to think of the person's well-being. So I don't have an answer to that other than I would seek support from my HR people or from your organization, Denise. People do talk about not wanting to live, 
And we, as your coworker or your friend or neighbor, we don't know what that really means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting. If if a coworker or a colleague was going to be reaching out to someone who suffered a loss, would it be a good idea for them to ahead of time sort of have a resource available like the lawyer assistance program or an organization's employee assistance program sort of have the number available so that if the person they're talking to says statements like that, that sound frightening or sound like the person's thinking about taking their life, that they could say, you know, here's a number you can call. Yes. That way they wouldn't have to go to HR and talk to anyone else. They could just already have the number available and say, you know, it sounds like you could use someone to talk to. Here's the number of our EAP, for instance. That's a really great suggestion. I, I know with our clients, almost everybody has depression when they're grieving. And so if people say to me, and most people do, at some point will say, you know, if I didn't get up tomorrow, that would be okay. I always, always ask people if they're having suicide ideation. Most people will laugh and say no, but there are people who not only do they are having suicide ideation, they know when, where, how, and why they're going to do it. It's rare, but, but we do see that. Right. So you may be tearful. Is it okay if you cry? That's just something for you to think about. Hug or not hug, I guess that's a no-brainer today. Recognize that no matter how distraught or fragile the griever seems, please know that we're generally more resilient and stronger than we think. And again, understand that grief is not a problem to be solved, but a process that takes time and attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it's a normal process, but it would look different in everybody, right? It does. But again, we live in a culture that has taken away that normalcy. Yeah. I mean, you'd think even with the past three years that it might have gotten more normal or accepted or because <laughs> because it's been so common in the last three years during the pandemic that people have had to face uh, loss. Yes. And there's been a lot of ambiguous loss also over the last three years. So I'm sure that happens often in the workplace, too, whereas it's just a lot of ambiguity to it. It's not cut and dried. Kathleen, you mentioned tasks of mourning or tasks of grieving. Can you say more about that, about those tasks? Absolutely. Thank you, Denise. I think they're really important. So the first one is to accept the reality of the loss. We talked earlier about the stages. When we look at death and dying, acceptance is usually the last stage. But with grief and mourning, we feel that that actually has to be the first task that needs to be reconciled. It doesn't mean it's okay. Loss and death is never okay. But it's impossible to move forward, particularly if there's a traumatic death. But with any death, it's impossible to move forward until you have accepted that that loss is real. Initially, you know on some level that it is, but knowing it in your heart and in your mind are two different things. And I tell a story about my grandmother. Four of her five children predeceased her. My mother died unexpectedly. She saw the body. She went to the funeral. Three months later, she said, you have to take me to your mother's house. And we go to the house and she goes and she sits in my mother's chair and she says, I just had to make sure she wasn't here. That is such a classic example of how I really can't believe this has happened. Mm -hmm. Initial shock and numbness, it's okay. A little denial at the get-go, of course, that gets you through it. You don't have to talk about everything all at once. You don't have to clean out the closets. If you don't want to look at pictures, that's fine. But the task is to figure out how to live in the presence of the absence. And that requires that you accept that he or she is gone. So what helps? Confronting yourself, acknowledging your loss with your head and your heart, and journaling and writing down things. Accept that it may take months, weeks, years. There's no timetable. It's your timetable. 
The important part is that you're acknowledging it. The second task of mourning is experiencing the pain of loss. And there's two aspects of that. It's emotional pain and physiological pain. Now, they're tightly interrelated. And as anybody who's listening to this probably is well aware, this can go on forever. You know, usually the almost always the intensity of the pain subsides. But feeling the emotions, this is going to overlap with your life. So the common emotions are shock and disbelief, anger at others, yourself, God, guilt that you didn't do enough or that you're still alive and your loved one isn't. I like to point out something about guilt and regret. We all say we feel guilty. Guilty requires intent. And most of us do not intentionally harm our loved ones. So bear that in mind. Loneliness, we don't talk enough about loneliness. Relief, deep sadness, possibly depression. The symptoms of depression and grief, as you know, mimic each other. So it's really hard to tease that out. So you need to look at intensity and duration. I always say, if you have any concerns, please seek professional support. That's what they're there for. Oh, and anxiety and panic. Oh, golly. You know, I think they must be first cousins. Um, <laughs> just so prevalent in the grieving process. Yeah. And the emotions can come and go possibly forever, but they do diminish with time. You know, like 99% of the time they do. Physiological aspects or chest pain. People will often think they're having a heart attack. What they're having is anxiety, lack of energy, susceptibility to illness. Grieving people often get sick. Mm -hmm. Headaches, fatigue, increased muscle tension, shallow breathing, increase and decrease in heart rate or blood pressure. So what helps? Whenever I go to what helps, a lot of it's redundant, and it's not anything you don't know. There's no silver bullet. Deep breathing and meditation, particularly deep breathing. A doctor recently told me when you are actually practicing that, your body is telling your brain that you are okay. I'm not a physician. I don't know that, but I like it. <laughs> meditation, you know, there's tons of meditation apps out there. I prefer Headspace. They don't pay me to say that. Positive self-talk, you know, eat well, sleep well, exercise. Seek support, seek support, seek professional support. The third task of mourning is visualizing the future. The death of someone you love changes everything, obviously. And this task requires us to adjust to a life forever changed. We must learn to live again in the absence of the other. This is often the time that we become acutely aware of the roles that our loved one played in our lives. All of our relationships change. They change within our family or that whole family system changes. Your love persists after the loss, but how you think and relate to your loved one, eventually it changes. It has to change. The mechanics of your life change. Who will you talk to? Who will you problem solve with? Who will perform the many roles performed by your loved one? This is where we also talk a little bit about secondary losses. And those are the losses that you've experienced aside from the primary loss, which is the loss of your loved one. And that could be Income, loss of identity, loss of hopes and dreams, loss of faith, loss of relationships, just about any kind of loss you can think of is a secondary loss associated with the primary loss. Imagining a future with anything but misery can seem impossible, but believing that perhaps in some future we could be all right again has a way of imprinting itself upon your mind and making you feel a little better eventually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I always say, not today or tomorrow, but eventually. You know, again, time and effort will be required to the point at which we realize not only what we have lost, but also what we still have. It's important to remember that not everything has changed. It just feels like it, but it hasn't. Other things that help are acknowledging the losses you are experiencing, dealing with them as they come up. 
you know, early on in a loss, depending on what that loss is and who the person is, there could be 500 things in line ahead of you having the time to really think about the loss of that person. Let others know how you were feeling. Again, know your audience. Allow yourself to express whatever emotions come up for you and recognize it's okay to grieve losses other than death. It's also important to realize these are just feelings. They're not actions. You're not going out and hurting somebody or whatever. They're feelings. Remember, again, the things that have stayed the same. Task four is deciding on the meaning of your loved one's death. At that task, you're redefining the emotional bonds with the deceased and reinvesting in others and in the future. And then the fifth one is achieving a mix of the old and the new. Attaining this task puts you well along in the process of your grief. You're developing that much overused phrase now, your new normal. But that's, that's what you're doing, developing your new normal. Mm -hmm. Not all of your life needs to be new. Your loved one is physically gone, but you have not lost your skills, talents, etc. Our faith and philosophical systems have been challenged by our loss. Paul Schutte states, our assumptive world has fallen apart. The earth has been yanked from under you. This stage allows us to rebuild those systems. Reconciling our task does not mean closure. Closure is not and cannot be the goal. Reconstruction is the goal. To go from saying goodbye to saying hello. Mm, I like that. Kathleen, thank you so much for being here today and sharing this all this wonderful information about Haven and about the grieving process. This is information we all need because we are all going to go through losses, you know, at, at some point in our lives. So thank you so much for this time with us. Thank you for having me and addressing this important topic. I want to remind members of the DC Bar, DC judges, and DC law students, if you would like free confidential help managing a loss or getting grief support, or with any other mental health related issue, please reach out to the DC Bar Lawyer Assistance Program. You can email us at lap at dcbar.org. Until next time, take care.